Welcome to another Truth Factor discussion. We're so thankful that you're able to take the time to join us for our study today. If you're watching this at a later point in time, well, thank you as well for your interest in spiritual matters. This morning, we're going to be continuing in our study through uh, the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 9, the latter half of that. And Thomas Thornhill from California began our study last week of chapter 9. But before I turn it over to Tom, I'm going to throw it to Paul. And Paul, if you would, let everybody know how they can participate in today's study. I'd be very happy to do that, John. Uh, as we look at this today, we're, uh, we'd love for you to participate in our study. And there's a number of ways you can do that through YouTube and Facebook and Twitter. And, and you can interact with us. Uh, if on YouTube, you go to Truth Factor Live, uh, you can find us and you can use the chat feature in that as long as you have a YouTube account. Uh, you can do that on Facebook, facebook.com slash truthfactorlive. Uh, Twitter's the same, it's slash truthfactorlive, and you can use all of those. If you'd like to drop us an email, and so we try to monitor that as quickly as we can, uh, send us an email at questions at truthfactor.com. That's questions at truthfactor.com. And we'll be uh, glad to introduce your question and comment uh, as we study along together today. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. And I'll leave that information up on the screen for a few more minutes. Tom, let's see. We began last week in Acts chapter 9, and we are somewhere about halfway through. So if you would go ahead and let everybody know what we're looking at today. Right. All right. Yeah. Uh, uh, thank you, John. Yeah. Last week, we discussed the conversion of Saul, and we talked a little bit about at what point he was converted. And, and we noted that it wasn't while he was on the road to Damascus, even though even though that's where he started making the turn in his life. He had to obey the gospel like the rest of us. And, and then we started dealing with, or we concluded our study, we were in the midst of a section dealing with what I describe as Paul's early Christian life. We, we read verses 19 through 31 of, of uh, this particular text, which describes... Uh, Saul with what he is interacting and doing in the city of Damascus. And then he heads out toward uh, Jerusalem. Uh, uh, you, you, you think we ought to read that again as we start? Or it, we, we can, if you'd like to. Yeah, you know, why, why, don't, we, why don't we just go ahead and do that? And, and uh, you know, Brian, since I, since I got you here, I put you on the spot. <laughs> Uh, why don't you read those verses for us? Actually, you can start like in verse 20. And okay, so I'm reading verses 20 through, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 20 through 31, correct? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so immediately he began to, I'm sorry, I'm reading from the New American Standard. Let me actually switch that to the New King James. I believe that's what we're using this morning. So uh, beginning at verse 20 of Acts chapter 9, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on his this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him. They did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and he had spoken to them, to him, and how he had boldly preached at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. All right. Okay. Uh, um, thank you, Brian, for reading that. So here we find uh, that uh, Paul has been converted. And, and the, we had the chat room question last week, and I want to put that up again in case some people... I think we got a couple of answers to it last week, but maybe we maybe we'll get a little more discussion on this. Um, kind of a it 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 the question was how does one prove that Jesus is the Christ? And 
um, and, and it's based upon the fact that Paul, uh, it talked about how he was reasoning with them and so on. And uh, so we can talk a little more about that uh, as we conclude this particular section here. We, we, we find that uh, as Saul is converted, he, he spends several days with them there in Damascus, and he's immediately preaching Christ in the synagogues that, that he's the son of God. So here Saul turns around from making arguments against Christ, and, and almost immediately he's doing the absolute complete opposite. And uh, he's very effective at what he is doing. And uh, uh, what was the response of the people as a result of this in verses 21 and 22? Anybody? So. Oh, it's just there, uh, Tom, that they were amazing. And I am echoing through someone. I think Tom. Uh, and so uh, it says that they were amazed there. And they. Uh, the thing that seems to amaze them, uh, along with Paul's reasoning, is the conversion that has taken place in his life. Uh, that this is the one, uh, they said, uh, who has... Uh, previously uh, destroyed those who call on his name, and now he's preaching those things. And so that's uh, sometimes that's a, a strong testimony uh, as we think about that is when we see the change that takes place in someone's life, uh, that, that, that makes a, an incredible difference for them. Okay, yeah, uh, uh, and... and that's a good way to describe that. And then that's exactly what's happening. So, so we find that there's just, there is an absolute amazement as of the change. And, uh, uh, we, we could go through the various emotions that people would have when they see a change like that, as in probably some doubt the sincerity of it and so on, but that's not what we, that's not what we're trying to do. Uh, we can take the word for what it says because we do have the hindsight and so on. Uh, you also find there in verse 22 that he continues to, increase in strength um, uh, in, in his wisdom and so on and and he's very he's very powerful and able to in his ability to prove that Jesus is the Christ so we find that after this takes place the Jews plot to kill him uh, and uh, 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 and so when Paul, Paul finds out about the plot uh, he escapes the city how? Well, there's an obvious uh, indication here that the brethren loved Paul enough to save his life. They let him down over the wall of the city of Damascus in a very large basket. Um, to me, that shows two things. One, they are convinced that Paul is converted, else they would not have helped him. The other thing is, it shows that they were very much concerned for his life wanted to protect him, and so that's brotherly love to the extreme to help him escape the danger of life in that city. Right, exactly, and, and and that's what you have taking place. So so they let him down, and basically what it says there in verse 25 is they let him down uh, through the wall in a large basket. And it's kind of interesting. I think Paul actually mentions this in the book of Second Corinthians. You know, he, he makes allusion to it as one of the things that he had to endure as he was helping his brethren and so on. Uh, but going beyond that, the next place we find him showing up is he comes to Jerusalem. And, and, and evidently he's not there a long length of time, but he seeks to join the disciples there. And uh, uh, there is a hesitation on their part to do that. Uh, but uh, what are your thoughts about the idea of this joining the disciples? I, one of the things I mentioned last week is the word join that is used there is a word that actually means to attach oneself to. You know, we, we, we talk today about uh, how, how people ought to uh, join a local congregation. And, of course, we, we know that, that that term join the church is kind of thrown around and misused in the denominational world. There's a sense in which we need to understand we do join something, but there's another sense in which it's not about joining. It's about being added, and we need to know the difference between those two things. Uh, this is an interesting passage here because Paul doesn't stay in Jerusalem very long, but yet it says he tried to attach himself to them. What are your all's thoughts on that? 
Anybody. John well, in particular. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom, um, whenever, I, whenever I, I stop and think about this, I think about the number of instances down through the years where individuals I, I let's see if I can word this a little bit better than what I'm doing. I think that this passage has been abused through the years. Um, ultimately, I believe what Paul did was every time he went to a congregation, whether he was there for three weeks or he was there for two years, he worked with that congregation. He went there, said, "I'm here to work," and he and and here at Jerusalem, they were they were hesitant to receive him. Okay, he he or he went to them, tried to join himself to him, tried to work with them, and they were hesitant. And Barnabas had to step in on his behalf. Um, I, I've heard some interesting stories where this this one individual had had been with the congregation for a number of years, moved away, come back, and was there again like another five or six years. And some point towards the end of that second time, someone challenged whether or not he was a member because he never placed membership when he moved back to the congregation. And um, oftentimes we see that this idea of membership becomes more than a working member of the body. It becomes a, I'm able to be on the roll. One time this denominational preacher said, you know, we have 2,000 people um, in the roll book, but only about 30 attend regularly. And um, when, when you when you look at the scriptures, you find there is scriptural precedent for people of a congregation to be members, to be a part of that body there. But if you're going to be somewhere two weeks or you're going to be somewhere two years, you should at least be a working part of that body while you're there. Um, it's not just something so we can put you in a directory. It's being a part yeah. of an actual body body. And, Anyways, and, my thoughts. And, uh, yeah, and, and, and that's a great observation. We actually discussed this a little bit after the, yeah. uh, after the program ended last week, and, and, and I know John had some thoughts, so I wasn't just putting him on the spot. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, but yeah. but I have, I've seen cases where someone has been at a congregation for several years, and when finally asked, are you a member here? Or when asked, why don't you become a member here? They'll say, I thought I was. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, it's cause every, every Sunday, every Wednesday night, they're always there working with everybody else. Um, now I, I do think if a new, if you move into an area, do like Paul, let the local church know that you're going to be there and you'd like to work with them. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's yeah. simply what, what Paul did. Um, but I yeah, worry yeah, sometimes, yeah, you know. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I think there's precedent for that. And I think there's precedent for encouraging people. And, and, and I honestly believe God wants us to be part of a local congregation. Oh, I, I, I think, I think I'm fearful that some of our brethren have dismissed that as unimportant yep. or as not as important as I think it ought to be. And, and, and maybe I'm putting too much emphasis on it. I don't think I am. Uh, you know, I, I, I believe there's enough precedent to, to indicate God wants you to be part of a local body if, if that's at all possible. But we know that there's also some, uh, exceptions and we're going to see some of that as we go through the book of Acts. But one point that I would make about that though is in these exceptions that you see, uh, they're all temporary. You know, it, it, it's temporary circumstances. Why, why you wouldn't be part of a congregation it ought to be only for a short period of time until you get things worked out to where you can be part of a local work. Uh, the local work needs you, and you need the local work, and it's just that simple. So, uh, but 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 it's a great discussion, and I agree with you, John. Uh, this is something that can be an abused. Uh, that uh, we can think about it just in the lines of uh, how many people do we have on our on our roster, and and it's it's not about that at all. Mike yeah. uh, Davis has a comment, and then uh, I, may, I may have a follow-up. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, all, all I wanted to say is that it's interesting to note that later, uh, as Paul begins to write a lot of letters to churches of Christ, he's the one that says that we are fitly joined together, uses the word, and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, meaning the, the composition that allows us to be attached one to the other. He puts it in the figure of a body. Mm -hmm. You are a part of that local congregation. You're part of that family and very much obligated to build up one another in the most holy faith. 
so that uh, what Paul was trying to do was allow himself an opportunity to be built up in the holy faith and to exchange that by building up them as much as he could, kind of a give and take here. Uh, you've said it rightly. It is a part of the body of Christ, and it is a part of, of working for the Lord. It's not just having your name on a roll book so that sometimes it can show up in an obituary that they attended the Church of Christ in such and such a place. They need yeah. to be involved. Yeah, exactly. And 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 if Christ is important to you, you know, for the life of me, I can I can. And this is me speaking. Uh, but I, I cannot fathom why somebody would not want to be part of a work, uh, you know, and, and help them out. You know, e even though there are people out there that don't, and this is part of the discussion we had when we got off camera last week, is, is I know of individuals that have been attending for years, and they're not members of a congregation, but it's their choice. In other words, they don't want to identify with that congregation, and and I I have serious concerns about that. You know, so. I, I had a question. Yeah, go ahead, Paul. For, for the uh, group here, uh, some have looked at this passage and used it as the authority to refuse membership uh, to someone who would like to. They come along and they say, "I would like to work and worship with this local congregation," and uh, maybe because of their reputation or, or something they know. Uh, or some concern about them, they will refuse uh, to receive them. What do you think? Uh, my thoughts on that. You know, if uh, my thoughts on, I think I think it is authority for that. I I uh, I think you can tie this together with the passages that talk about withdrawing from or marking. So you know, we talk about the term withdrawing from somebody, but you've also got the idea of identifying them, mark those, note those who cause divisions. Uh, and avoid them, though the Romans chapter 16 and, and other passages, that seems to indicate to me that that if you have just cause to refuse membership, uh, I don't have a problem with that. Now, I think you better be very careful if you're going to refuse membership. You better have a good reason. It doesn't. It ought, shouldn't be because. You know, I just don't want you in our midst or, or you're just not the type of person that we like or something like that. Uh, it, it, it better be on scriptural grounds. At least that's my thoughts on that. You know, I'll, I'll throw some thoughts in there, too. That's a great question, uh, Paul. And I kind of would look at this and maybe we are all semi in agreement that this passage here in Acts chapter nine probably isn't a place where we're finding authority for questions about membership, because in part what we're being what we're being told, the purpose and intent of this passage is that we're being told that Paul had such a strong reputation and frankly had done such damage to the brethren in Jerusalem that they were both fearful and resentful. And that resentful might be something I'm adding in there of receiving him. And it really may not be the idea of membership we're discussing here. However, I would suggest that we do have a concept both of church membership in the local church that's a necessary inference. I believe we have a couple of elders in our group, and they would understand, they would be able to speak to the idea of how important it is to, uh, to enact things like church discipline, that the concept of whether or not somebody is a member of the local church is absolutely vital to their work. So it is an absolute necessary inference that one must uh, at least have the consideration of membership in a local church if they are submitting to overseers within that church, if they're submitting to church discipline. Now, I would also just suggest that there is an absolute authority for not receiving certain people as members of the congregation. But I would turn to Second John for the place that I would see that. In Second John, we're told very explicitly that if somebody comes and they do not have the doctrine of Christ, we are not to receive them. We're not to have a relationship with them. Uh, that they are not uh, to be seen as members of the church. Now, we know that non-Christians can visit the assembly. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 tells us that. But they're not visiting as members. So we probably should understand that there's a distinction between somebody visiting a church and someone becoming a member of a church, and that we wouldn't allow members uh, of people whom, uh, who are not Christians, nor are we to allow people who do not have the doctrine of Christ when they come to us to have that. I think I might I might summarize it all by saying this. Membership in a local church is based on our fellowship in the universal church. 
so that if somebody does not have fellowship with us, which fellowship is assigned, de, defined in 1 John chapter 1 as walking in the light, if somebody's not in fellowship because they're not walking right, we are not permitted to have membership with them. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul instructed the church there to put out of membership those with whom they were not in fellowship. And so that might be one way of considering this. This passage doesn't necessarily speak to those things, but there are other passages that unequivocally and authoritatively do. That's uh, the, that's a great point, Brian, that you make there. And, and, and we need to understand that distinction. Uh, so uh, great observations there. When, when Paul instructs the uh, the Ephesian elders at Miletus, uh, he speaks to the uh, elders who are among you, uh, I exhort. And so I may have the wrong wrong quote there. Uh, no, you're at Acts I, 20, it, verse 20. It just occurred to me. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah exactly. And, 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 and I appreciate the pointing out. We need to understand that there is a correlation. There needs to be a correlation between the, the church universal and a local congregation. Even even though obviously they're structured differently and everything about it, so that's a great observation. And I uh, I actually agree with with John too. And I may have just jumped in ahead of somebody, but but John say we have to be careful not to abuse any of this uh, to make more of it than what's there, uh, but to recognize the importance uh, of a local congregation and the work and worship that goes on there. And I'll be quiet now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. right, right. All right. Well, you know what? Uh, uh, we could probably we could probably keep uh, discussing this, but let's move on because so that we can finish chapter nine this week. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, so uh, uh, if there's no more thoughts, very good. Okay. All right. So, uh, well, we find that he is with the brethren there at Jerusalem, uh, and has already been pointed out. Barnabas stands up for him and defends him. And uh, in verse 29, it makes the point that he is speaking boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputing against the Hellenists. Uh, and of course, they attempted to kill him. And just kind of an interesting uh, thought here is, uh, who were these Hellenists? Or or uh, when you see this name, uh, who's this talking about? Any thoughts? Weren't they Greek-speaking Jews? Yes, that, that's what my footnote says about them. And, and what's interesting about that is, obviously, they were still, these were still Jewish brethren, whether they were proselytes or, or whether they were just Jews who had learned and, and uh, I guess they had been raised in places that primarily spoke the Hellenistic language or languages. And what I, I would say, as opposed to the Hebrew or, or, or the, or the language of the Jews. And so that's who this seems to be here. Uh, I don't think we can say it's Gentile Christians. Not yet, at least. Uh, that would be in the next chapter or, or, uh, or Gentiles because obviously it was dealing with, uh, it was dealing with, uh, Jews on this occasion. So, and they attempt to kill him because he's causing problems there in Jerusalem. Any other thoughts? Okay, if not, uh, uh, what do we find in verse number 31 uh, as far as the result of, and, and I think that this is an overall summary of the conversion of Saul. And the few verses that we've talked about leading up to this, I think that this is concluding that. What's the observation made here in verse 31? Anybody? Oh, we look at his impact there, Tom. Uh, the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria had comfort. They were edified uh, by virtue of the fact that he is no longer this uh, incredible, incredibly bad uh, persecutor of Christians. Uh, he's no longer leading that charge. And now he is preaching the gospel. Uh, we see there that uh, they had peace. They were edified, walking in the fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit. They're multiplied again. Uh, even in the face of that persecution, the group is growing. I might look at verse 21 uh, as a uh, statement more about uh, a summary of Paul's conversion, his work, how he increased in strength, confounded the Jews uh, who dwelt in Damascus, proving that he is uh, the Christ. Here, uh, the Apostle Paul is uh, formerly known as Saul. Uh, he's going to uh, be gr uh, growing in the faith. So he's come to know who Christ is. He's preaching him uh, valiantly. Uh, but as we see that, he is uh, also uh, 
learning and growing and increasing in his strength and in his knowledge. Yeah, it, 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 exa- exactly. And and uh, um, I've got a just one another real quick observation to make associated with this. But but first of all, before we do that, we we do have a couple of comments uh, that have been dealt with, or at least I have at least one here in uh, in the Facebook chat. I don't know if there's anything going on over on YouTube. Uh, do you you want to bring those in, John? Or yeah, yeah. Now I think these are going to be an answer to your chat room question. Uh, okay. Well, now well, I've got the. Uh, you got the one by Drew Force about the difference between righteous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me bring that up real quick. Yeah. Okay. All right. And okay. Well, so yeah, go ahead well, if you want to read it, or I can either way. Yeah. Well, go ahead, John. You read it. Okay. I Drew writes, that is the difference between righteous judgment versus opinions of man. That is what we are charged to do. If we're allowing in error that is that which is wrong, but we have to have a scriptural basis for it and not just a feeling. I think that's going back to our discussion about um, bringing people into the congregation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's why I wanted to go ahead and bring that in. So that's a... Makes sense. that's a good thought here. All right. Well, uh, any other comments on that up to this? Yes. There's one in the YouTube chat as well. Uh, okay. Is, is it that, dealing Paul? with that discussion? Go ahead. Paul, is okay, it the one? I can bring it in if you'd like, John. Um, well, tell me which one. Is it Gregor Hinckley or Brian? Gre- well, uh, Brian uh, Brian can speak for himself. <laughs> but uh, Gregor uh, says, uh, okay. as we look there, the question was, how does one prove that Jesus is the Christ? And Gregor says, a documentation. Jesus experienced fulfill, uh, and fulfilled the prophecies given in the Word of God, the Old Testament. And most importantly, a lot of witnesses proclaimed his resurrection, uh, God's signature on salvation. And so uh, I think that's a good answer to that question. And I appreciate Gregor uh, making uh, his comment today. Yeah, yeah, and and absolutely, amen to that, and and uh, um, that's a good answer to the chat room question. The word that comes to my mind when I think about that is is the word reasoning. Uh, I've been reading through the book of Acts lately, and one of the things I, uh, if you haven't done this before, I challenge you just as you read through the book of Acts, look for these types of words where it talks about reasoning with them, where it talks about uh, I, we read earlier he confounded. He confounded the Jews, I think, here, here, uh, as he was converted there in, uh, 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 Damascus. And, and even we just got done reading in, uh, 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 let's see. We just got done reading here in verse, uh, verse 29, where it says he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord and disputed against the Hellenists. The point is, is he was making his case. And, and, and my thoughts on this is just to remind us that we need to be making a case. And Gregor gave several examples of what we're talking about. Uh, a, a part of the life of a Christian is being able to give a defense for the hope that is in us. First Peter chapter three and verse number 15. And, uh, uh, that, that means we need to be thinking about these things. And of course it's on my mind because I'm getting ready to begin a very extensive class on evidences and and a part of it's going to be about the bible and a part of it's going to be about the life of jesus so so anyway so that's why these things are just sticking out to me and i just thought it was worthy of mentioning there any other thoughts on that okay uh if if not just one real quick observation we're going to move on and and, and that is in verse number 31 where we read about the peace uh, the church is having peace all throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria and so on. I, I just find it interesting how much damage or good one person can do. And, uh, you know, here, here we have Paul. He has the ability to inflict great damage. And, and there was great fear all around because of his actions. And, and and there's just a great lesson for there from from an individual standpoint. We may not have the impact that Paul has, but we need to remind ourselves that the decisions that we make and the actions that we take, uh, they can and will have an impact on other people, whether for good or for bad. Any other thoughts on that? 
All right. Well, if not, let's move on to the uh, the next section. And I've got this listed as verses 32 through uh, 43. And this is this is we turn our attention now to Peter uh, after we've dealt with the conversion of, of Saul. Um, we're going we're gonna to bring him back in when we get to about chapters 12 and 13 and so on, primarily 13. But 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 now we have Peter again and some things dealing with Peter. Um, and so in verses 32 through 42, John, could I get you to read those for me? Or through 43? Yes, 32 through 43. All right, let's see what we've got going here. So I'm going to get it loaded up locally here. So continuing. Now it came to pass as Peter went through all the parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Annas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Annas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him. All right, hang on just a moment. My computer's slow. There we go. Saw him and turned to the Lord. Sorry. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a Tanner. All right. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, now, the the uh, chat room question that I have for this particular section is, uh, is uh, what lessons can we learn from the work of Dorcas? So that's uh, uh, something to think about as, as we discuss, Peter. And what we actually have taking place here is a couple of miracles that Peter performs, uh, and uh, those help confirm the message of Peter, which is what we see as a result of many of these miracles that are mentioned throughout Acts, is they result in many people turning to the Lord and believing, uh, which as we under, as we study miracles, that's what we find they're about. Now it says that it says that he went through various parts of the country or through all parts of the country through through the various area, and he came down to the saints who were dwelling in Lydda. Now I I, I looked it up actually this morning. I looked up Lydda, and uh, Lydda is uh, about twenty four miles uh, west northwest of Jerusalem. And it's actually in a straight line from there. And you, you keep going beyond that, you'll get to Joppa, which is the next town, which is, I think, another 10 miles further from that. So about 24 miles west-northwest of, of Jerusalem is where Peter is. And he's meeting with the saints in that particular location. And uh, uh, then we read about this man, Aenus. And what do we know about him or what do we learn about him in this text? He'd been sick for eight years with paralyzation of some sort, uh, unable to leave his bed. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, and uh, then we just read about this miracle that Peter performs. Uh, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make up your bed. And he arises immediately. And as a result of that, it makes the point all who were dwelling in that area, uh, Lydda and Sharon, they saw him and they turned to the Lord. And uh, um, do you think when it says all who met, who all who dwelt there, that that means every single one in those cities? No, usually that means the large majority. Yeah, it, 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 exactly. 
and 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 so it's it's used collectively, if you will. You know, it's kind of a descriptive of uh, of, of this would be a large percentage of those, and basically it even goes on. It it says that that all that saw it, it says that they saw him. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean that every single individual saw him, unless unless this was just a tiny village. You know, I mean, we don't know the size of it uh, uh, from that standpoint. But they turned to the Lord. Uh, as a result of this, so we find miracles confirming the message and people are willing to listen to the message. And one thing that's interesting to note here is while there was great success in Jerusalem uh, as miracles were performed and so on, we're getting a little bit further spread out. And the, for lack of a better term, uh, you know, the thumb of the Jewish leaders and the, the the council in Jerusalem wasn't as strong the further out you got because they had to go further. I'm not saying they didn't have a, any control or anything, but people might be more likely to listen the further away from Jerusalem you get. And, well, Tom, and- I, well, I very much agree with that, Tom. Let me add another aspect to this. In the early part of the eighth chapter, you remember that the disciples were scattered. And they went everywhere preaching the word. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. So this is the first reference of an apostle leaving. The, well, actually, the ninth chapter is when Peter goes to Samaria. But the apostles now are beginning to leave Jerusalem as well. But when the apostles are leaving, they're finding already pockets of the church of Christ wherever yeah. they go. So the effectiveness here is of the gospel of Christ through common brethren. Not located preachers like we are, but just simply brethren who loved the truth enough to share it with someone else, who obeyed it and shared it with someone else. It's the fulfillment of Matthew 28, 19, and 20, where they go, they preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing those that they teach and teaching those that they baptize to go do the same thing. They're doing exactly that. And so this, this chain of events is showing that the church is growing by leaps and bounds, Miracles, of course, confirming that message, but they're listening to the truth, and that's that's the incredible thing. Yeah, exactly, and great point there. Anybody else have any other thoughts dealing with that? Or any other thoughts dealing with Anus? Uh, uh, one thing I find interesting about him in this particular text is, if I'm not mistaken, this is the only time we read about him in Scripture. So, you know, he's, he's another one of these examples of... Uh, of we only we only read about him one time and just one little small event, and, and you know someone might ask the question, and this is from an apologetic standpoint. Uh, why would why would the Book of Acts and other places bring up just little events like this that don't have a lot of, and I'm not being flippant, but not a lot of significance compared to the whole picture, just showing a single act that takes place. Well, Tom, I'm not sure if this is the answer you're thinking of, but I would suggest it's the concept of falsifiability. By giving very precise details, such as the names of people and where things happen, it gives an opportunity for somebody who was skeptical to investigate these things and find out if they're true. In other words, they could go to these places. They could go to Lydda and say, hey, was there ever a man named Aeneas here who, uh, who was healed, it, it offers the ability to investigate. So the concept is called falsifiability, the ability that it could be demonstrated false if if one were inclined to investigate it to that end. So so that might be the answer you're thinking of. Is that is that it? Yeah. Uh, and and that's, how, that's absolutely uh, uh, very much a part of it. And I, I like the way you bring up the point about falsifiability. Uh, one of the things I've learned in preparing for evidence is, you know, to teach to teach on evidences is, is when an experiment takes place, one of the things necessary to make it valid is it has to be falsifiable. There has to be something about it. Uh, how else do you know that it's true versus false if there's not that option there? So th- that's very much a, a lot of what I have in mind when I talk about that. I, I, uh, the only thing I would add to that is this lends to the fact that this is definitely a historical document. You know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, people want to people want to argue about the gospel being a myth that Jesus was mythological and uh, those types of things. 
Well, these places and these people, many of them have been absolutely verified. And clearly this is dealing with a historical event because if there were not people reading this that would have known who an anus was as an example, or even more detail when you get to the end of a book and they just kind of mention these people greet you, it would have absolutely no meaning whatsoever in a fictitious something that was brought up. But this shows that this is a historical document and it needs to be viewed as a historical document. Not exclusively, obviously it's the inspired word of God, but also it's historical. And, and that lends the case to giving it consideration. And you can use that as the foundation to make your case. So good point, Brian. Any, anybody else have any thoughts on that? Okay, if not, let's, let's continue because we have a second miracle that we want to give consideration to here with Peter. And, and it says this time, uh, this is in Joppa. And as I mentioned a few moments ago, you keep going in that straight line west, northwest from Jerusalem. It's about 24 miles, a little bit under, to uh, the city of Lydda. You go another 10 miles west of there. You come to the coast, the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and you have the city of Joppa. And, uh, and we find that here that there is a disciple, and her name is Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. And, and uh, any thoughts as to why you have two different names mentioned here? And what's the difference between those names? Or is there? Well, just real quick, the answer is yes <laughs> and no. Uh, both of them actually mean the same thing. Matter of fact, my, my, uh, my Bible or my uh, electronic Bible, when you uh, scroll over the footnote, it says the word means gazelle, and it's the same for both of them. But it says Tabitha is Aramaic, and Dorcas is Greek for the word gazelle. Uh, Aramaic was a modified form of Hebrew. It was basically... It was basically what you would call the, the common language of the Hebrew-speaking people or the Jews in that particular region. So Aramaic would be more associated with her Jewish name, or Tabitha. Dorcas would be the Greek name. And bear in mind that we're dealing with a section of the book of Acts where we're seeing the transition. We're, we're seeing the transition from Jews exclusively you know, you go to Acts chapter eight, and you're dealing with uh, you're dealing with the proselytes and some others in the area, the Samaritans, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, possibly was a uh, was a proselyte who had converted to Judaism and so on, and and they're taught. Here we find this name Tabitha, and then her Greek name is also mentioned. We're in the section dealing with this transition, and Michael cover that more next week when we get to chapter ten and the conversion of Cornelius. Um, which is very, very important from that standpoint. So, so, um, that's the reason for those mention being mentioned here. And we've got this Dorcas. She's described as a woman full of good works, charitable deeds, doing various types of things. And she had become sick and, uh, and died. And, uh, they washed her and they laid her in an upper room. It says, and then they knew that, uh, Peter was near 10 miles away. They send, for Peter there, and I, I believe it was in Lydda at that time, uh, pleading him to come to them. Now, I find this interesting that Dorcas is has died. Now, I don't know if she died before they sent anybody to Peter or whether she was already sick and dying, and they send for Peter and she dies before he gets there. Uh, it's worded as if she had already died, which means that they believe that maybe he could raise her from the dead when they sent for him. Whatever the case, uh, Peter comes and the miracle is going to take place. Uh, any observations as they send for Peter or thoughts on that? Okay, so, so, uh, so, so that is taking place. They implore him to come and he comes without delay. Uh, and, and he goes with them. And they bring him into the upper room, and it says that the widows were were weeping, showing the tunics and garments that she did, 
uh, while she was with them. And uh, she was a very benevolent person. We'll talk about more of that in the thought question here in a moment. Peter puts uh, everybody out, kind of clears the room, if you will, kneels down and prays. And he turns to the body and he orders, Tabitha, arise. She opens her eyes and uh, she sees Peter and sits up. And then, of course, Peter presents her to the people. And when that takes place, it becomes known throughout the region or throughout all of Joppa. And many people believe in the Lord once again. And then we just read about Simon staying with another Simon who was a tanner there in the city of Joppa. And that's going to factor into uh, next week also why why Peter was in Joppa. So anyways, uh, any thoughts on the context or any observations, any questions anybody has? I kind of want to bring something up about Simon the Tanner, um, if this is a good place for that, Tom. One of the interesting okay. things, uh, one of the interesting things about Simon the Tanner is that a tanner in dealing with dead bodies and, and some of the things you have to use in order to tan uh, animal hides was, at least according to a lot of commentaries and a lot of the Bible dictionaries, was a profession where he was consistently unclean, uh, according to the Jewish standard of handling things. Um, so it's a really remarkable thing that Peter actually chose to live with him. Uh, one, I read one book years ago that pointed out that people that tanned hides also smelled horrible because of the things that they were dealing with. And as I said, cleaning uh, and tanning animal hides is a pretty a gruesome process. And some of the things you have to use to do so are, are uh, rather filthy. So, you know, the description is that they always smelled bad. So Peter is living in a home with somebody who probably is set apart from everybody else. It's actually a very unusual thing that he would go live with the tanner. And that's probably why it's worthy of note here. Now, yeah. I think the more striking thing is that this kind of sets us up for what's going to happen in chapter 10 when he's going to be going to Cornelius the Gentile, who is unclean because of who he is in, in the Jewish perspective of things. And so it's kind of an interesting step from uh, for Peter to step to living with this Simon the Tanner and the implications of that to going to see Cornelius in the next chapter. And I, I think, again, it's that it's that flow of Scripture that's just so amazing sometimes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, going back to the point we made earlier about the reasoning and, and looking at these things in these texts, why are these kinds of things mentioning? They, 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 they give dimension and, and uh, they, they give layers to, to what is being presented and, and, and um, many things to consider as a result of that. So great observation there, Brian. Anybody else have any thoughts on the healing of Dorcas? And, of course, the result of it is many believe on the Lord. Uh, and, and so we have that taking place here. Now, uh, John, you got that chat question again? And is there anybody that made some comments about that? Or Yes. The chat question was, what lessons can we learn from the works of Dorcas? And Gregor Hinckley put the following. Her service was many charitable deeds, including making clothing. Our job may not be teaching, preaching, but doing whatever is needed, providing for the needy brethren, doing service to others. Very good. That's a, and, and uh, I guess you say that's the lesson that, or the lesson I was looking for, the answer I was looking for. There may be others that you could add to it, but that's definitely one of the things we learned from her is that, you know, a, uh, there's there's lots of things that we can do. Again, when you think of Dorcas, like Aenus, even though there's a couple of more verses, this is all we read about her. We read nothing else, but yet we find that in those tunics and the way that she cared for those who were needy and so on, she was recognized as a result of that. She was important. And, and the, the things that she did made an impact on those who were around her. So much so that when she died, you read about the great weeping that was taking place. And, and as Peter shows up, they show the works that she had done. So you, you, you just have, a, you have a, a great example here of somebody that, for the most part, is working behind the scenes. Uh, but yet that work is just as important as that person that's standing up in front of the audience or the, the, the person that's taking the leadership role and so on. So yeah, great, great thought there by Gregor and so on. Any, anybody else have any comments on that? 
No, that's all from the chat room, Tom. All right. All right. Well, if there is nothing else, I'm uh, basically done my part. So uh, I'm going to turn it back over to you, John. Tom, I appreciate your um, leadership as we have looked at Acts chapter 9, both last week and this week. You did a good job with that. And I appreciate it. And I want to take a moment to thank you for joining us for our study today. I recognize sometimes that our progress may not be very fast, but at the same time, hopefully we're not too slow either. Um, our ultimate goal is to study the Word of God and factor the truth of His Word into our daily lives. And so we greatly appreciate your willingness to participate in our study with us. We appreciate your time and your attention as well. And we'd also appreciate it if you wouldn't mind subscribing to our YouTube channel. As Paul mentioned at the start of our study, you can go to youtube.com slash truthfactorlive, click the subscribe button, and click the little bell notification so you'll receive those notifications when we do uh, post a study or we go live with a study. You can also follow us on Facebook if you would like, and that is facebook.com slash truthfactorlive. Well, gentlemen, are there any other final thoughts or comments before we pull the study to a quick close? Uh, let's start with you, Brian. Get my sound back on. No, I don't have anything. I appreciate the study, Tom. <laughs> All right. How about you, Paul? No, uh, nothing from me. Do appreciate Tom's work in putting this study together. Looking forward to Mike uh, leading our study next week as well. Okay. Hey, that's right. Uh, Mike, I think you have Acts 10, don't you? I'm supposed to. Yes, sir. Okay. <laughs> Looking forward to it. <laughs> um, and Tom, do you have any final thoughts or comments? No, just uh, thank you to everybody in the audience. Th thank you for the panel, for your discussion and bringing up some things to think about. And uh, 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 Hopefully we learned or thought about some things, reminded us some things that we need to just remember as we strive to let our light shine. We look to the example of Acts and learn so much about how to live our lives. I agree. I agree, Tom, and I appreciate it. And hopefully, if everything goes according to plan, we will continue our study through the book of Acts. We'll be in chapter 10 next Wednesday. And that's at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. That's noon in the Eastern Time Zone. That's 9 a.m. Pacific Time. And 10 a.m. Mountain Time. That's right here at live.truthfactor.com. Have a wonderful week. <laughs>